Welcome to another episode of Rad Talk with Tracy. I'm your host, Tracy Poffenroth Prado. This podcast is all about reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. I'm going to be talking with parents who will be sharing their experiences of what it's like raising a child with RAD. It gets raw and it gets real. I'm also going to be talking with experts from different areas who will be sharing information about RAD, resources, and support. I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. So today I'm talking with Forrest Lean, and we're going to be talking about reactive attachment disorder and therapy. Forrest Lean is a world-renowned trauma expert and post-adoption advocate. He has been working in the field of attachment for almost 40 years. Forrest has consulted with 2020, HBO, and The Today Show, and has presented at over 300 workshops internationally, including the Mayo Clinic. He created a unique therapeutic treatment model for reactive attachment disorder and has helped thousands of children and their families. Forrest is also the founder and owner of Lifespan Trauma Consulting, where he continues his legacy guiding and advocating for adoptive and foster families and their children. Forrest, thanks for being on the show today. Sure. Glad to be here. Great. So let me ask you, how did you start working with trauma and reactive attachment disorder? Well, it was kind of an accident at some level. I mean, um, I knew I wanted to work with kids. I knew that, you know, way back when I was in high school, actually. Um, And so when I got in uh, out of undergraduate school, I went to work for a residential treatment center for you know kids that had been disrupted in their birth families ended up in foster care adoption and so when i was working in that population you know it's i was green naive didn't really know what i was doing but um i knew that i wanted to work with those kids and we found that the structure there of the residential treatment center really defined them but it didn't get internalized and i didn't learn that till later that um, they needed that external structure and the non-family environment to be able to function better. Um, And so from there, you know, um, a mentor of mine said, well, you better get your master's degree because you're never going to make any money in this business without it. So I applied to graduate school and it was in graduate school actually where I got introduced to attachment theory um, and it really made sense to me as I look back at those kids that I worked with, it started to click like, oh, okay, well, it makes sense why those kids did what they did based out of their early attachment disruption, their developmental disruption around trauma. And so I was able to normalize their behaviors a lot better. I understood it better, but I didn't know what to do about it yet. So when I went to work for the Casey Family Program in Tucson, Arizona, we were working with foster kids, and we were trying to establish permanency for those kids in foster or adoptive families. Back in those days, you didn't have to adopt these kids for family. You could actually raise them in long-term foster care, and if um, adoption became um, an appropriate plan for the child and the family, then you, you know, consummated the relationship through adoption. And unfortunately, we changed that philosophy. I wish we still had that system because, you know, adoptive families are pretty much um, kind of dumped on with these kids. So, so anyway, that's kind of led me into the attachment field. And that was back in, boy, the early 80s. So that's how long I've been working with this population. So You've been in it a long time. You've seen a lot of changes, I bet, too. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The frustrating part, though, is that the whole attachment field has really lagged behind as far as academics, uh, academia. um, Colleges are still not preparing clinicians to really know what to do about these kids. The only reason I do is because I've worked with these kids and families my whole career, so developed um, you know, through trial and error for what worked and what didn't work. So that's the unique experience I bring to the table today is that it's all based out of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, basically. Right. Yeah. And a lot of years, a lot of years. 
lot of so years. what for people who don't know or what is your explanation what is reactive attachment disorder well it's you know it's a definition in the diagnostic manual for mental disorders that is very vague so it's really hard for clinicians to identify it but the simple the simplest way is to define it as a reactive behavior to the developmental disruption of infancy and toddlerhood. So if we were to go back and look at the disruptions for children in those developmental stages, it makes sense because the first three years of life is the foundation for the rest of our life. And so if that's disrupted, we normalize these kids' behaviors in the context of they don't trust because their caregivers abandon them, hurt them, or whatever. The toddler stage is autonomy versus shame, guilt, and doubt, which means cause and effect thinking around rules and limits. So you've got these kids that don't trust you. They count on themselves. If the world evolves around them, you know, if you give them what they want, which is that toddler narcissistic phase, then they're okay with you. But as soon as you set limits and rules and try to connect with them and nurture them, that's when all hell breaks loose. And typically, it's the mother figure that the one, that's the one that gets it the worst because, you know, it's primarily mom's job to connect with these kids and attach to them. So that's my kind of lay explanation for, you know, what reactive attachment disorder is. Right. That's great. Um, and what are the early impacts of trauma? When you say disrupted and... Um, Describe that a little bit. Well, if you look at um, the first year of life, we kind of take it for granted as far as attachment. You know, that when a baby cries, we pick the baby up, we automatically start moving with them, you know, and the connection calms down their brain so their brains are in a hyper-aroused state. And so babies are able to calm in that environment. So if they're in a disruptive environment, whether it's, you know, they had addict parents that were partying and you know, screaming at their kids, you know, because they're disrupting their party or whatever, that child stays in that hyper-aroused fear of, I'm not safe, I can't count on you with my needs, and so babies end up crying, you know, stopping crying because they get hit when they cry. So the brain develops um, a survival response to not being cared for, that their needs aren't important. And so the brain stays pretty hardwired in that. So even touch uh, later on can trigger the trauma because they were physically abused. Um, food is a big issue with a lot of kids that were deprived of food, for example. So there's a lot of different reasons for the disruption, even moving kids. So like we have this idea in, in foster care that if you put these kids in loving, safe environments that they'll just rebound because they don't remember the trauma, but the brain, the brain and the body remembers the trauma. I mean, if you think about that philosophy that, well, if we just put these disrupted foster kids in safe homes, they'll rebound. Well, then that means we don't even need parents, right? We can just put kids in institutions and, and give them a bottle. And, you know, it just is thinking that the developmental foundation of our humanness is so critical in those first few years. So when kids go into adoptive placements, an adoptive home will parent the way they parent their own kids or, you know, how they were parented. And so these kids will push back, they'll coil when you touch them, they'll scream when, you know, all these different triggers around their trauma brain, it puts these adoptive parents in a disabled uh place because you don't know what to do. And so, you know, you might even, if a child cries, when you even try to nurture them, well, you put the baby down or the toddler down, whether cause and effect thinking says, if I scream, you won't touch me or get close to me, see? So the physical, verbal, emotional disconnection is a trigger for them when adoptive parents are just you know, trying to figure out how to help these kids rebound from those early traumas. So when I'm looking at histories, I'm looking at those developmental critical stages. And if a baby, you know, let's say they go into an adoptive home at two or two and a half, 
their history is around neglect or they come from an orphanage where we don't even know what happened to them. And I'll ask a parent, well, has this child settled into your care? Has this child ever responded to your nurturing, loving home? And if a parent says, well, yeah, in the first few years, they really did settle in. It took a while, but they started sleeping better. They responded better. They were happier. Well, that probably isn't reactive attachment disorder, you know, because the child rebounded from it. It could be the onset of, of a mental illness that's genetic to the birth parents of why the behavior changed. So that's where in my assessment, I'm able to tease out symptoms, looking at the history, how they've been, you know, how they developed, how they haven't caught up to really assess whether they struggle with attachment disorder or not, or something else. Um, because when you take these kids to mental health professionals, you know, someone that specializes in sensory integration puts that label. Someone who specializes in behavioral therapy says, well, this child, you know, won't respond any much. So there's lots of different disciplines that look at it from their own perspective of their own training rather than the bigger picture of everything that's going on. Um, so that's where in my experience and my assessment, I'm able to pull all that together and I can oftentimes finish your sentence as a, as a parent before you even tell me what's going on. Because there are specific symptoms that respond, that these kids uh, fall into that when you look at the diagnostic manual for disorders, it's all over the place. There's all kinds of different diagnoses that you can label these kids with, um, but a lot of times they're, they're incorrect or they're garbage pale. A lot of kids get labeled ADHD I don't think I've seen a kid in my whole career that wasn't labeled ADHD and put on stimulants. When in fact, a lot of these kids aren't ADHD, they're tra they have trauma brains. So if you're to pull up their prefrontal lobes on a, on a brain mapping, you can see an inflamed cortex that's always in an alarmed state. Uh, I got trained in neurofeedback years ago. And so just looking at how the brain um, has been traumatized, you can see it in their brain mapping, their QEGs. So is this still, in terms of therapy, uh, you know, I know RAD's been around a long time, but what kind of support is out there? Or is this still, you're saying in universities, it's still not taught. Um, where are we at with well, therapy? When support? I'm doing my, my lecturing, you know, I really want to emphasize how clinicians have to join with the family. Because a lot of times they're doing individual therapy with the kids or they're, all, you know, instead I, what I'm saying is start with the parents first. I mean, these kids will bring out whatever shortcoming you have in your psyche as an adult, as a parent. Nobody's perfect. So they will, they will find whatever your, your weakness are, your vulnerabilities. But if a therapist really is connecting with the parents, um, you're able to join together as a team because family therapy is really more the approach with these kids, with skilled attachment therapists. And if they're able to get grounded together that way, you have a better chance for the kid to fall in to the family uh, system versus the family adapting to the child system which happens over and over again. Most families are split, tired, frustrated, wore out. And then the mental health professionals are blaming mom because she looks depressed, she can't sleep, she's angry, she's irritated. You know, so I see that a lot where, you know, parents are just flustered and tired because they haven't really, and they, and they spent a lot of money trying to figure out how to help these kids. So there's a, there's a lot of, I think there's some skilled clinicians out there for sure, but being able to look at the overall picture and be able to zoom in on, on what you need to do to make this kid fit into your family is really the expertise you're looking for. Right. So it's really family-centered. Very centered. I mean, if you go to a therapist and says, oh, I'm an expert in that, drop your kiddo off and pick him up, you know, you know, don't, don't work with that therapist because these kids aren't ready for individual therapy yet. They don't have a good 
description of their own symptoms. They can't really report very well. All they can do is report how much everybody else is to blame for why they're unhappy. They're very good at that. And so a therapist ends up believing the kiddo instead of joining the parents. Or, or as a mom, you're sitting in the waiting room, frustrated, depressed, and angry. The kid puts a picture to that therapist and the therapist goes, yeah, your mom does look kind of angry and, and short, you know. So, um, you know, now the kiddo steps back and says, gotcha, mom, because now the therapist is on my side too. So I, I just can't emphasize more how much a therapist has to join with the family, the parents first to really assess the parents' uh, situation, how tired they are before you can even start working with the kid. Right. And so what happens? Is there, is there a point where it's too late or is there a point that therapy doesn't work for these kids? Because, you know, I know by the time a lot of families even figure out or find out or get a diagnosis for reactive attachment disorder, because there aren't skilled therapists in their area or they don't even know what it is. And by the time they get to therapy um, or the child might end up already in a residential treatment center um, out of the area, you know, is there a point where it's just, um, I don't know, too hard or, or too late? Well, believe it or not, there's uh, about 15 to 18% in my, in my research outcome data of kids with RAD that, that can't get better. So they're too defended, they're not buying in, they don't wanna be part of the family. In fact, those kids do better away from the family than in the family. Especially, remember I told you the story in the beginning when I was working in the RTC, that kids felt better in that non-family structured environment than they did at home. Well, those kids go to RTCs and they might do better there and then they go home and fall apart because they haven't internalized that structure or, or what they've learned there about themselves to be able to, to negotiate reciprocity in a, in a family environment. They just don't. So that's the problem. I think, you know, RTCs use their behavior model and kids look better, but they may not understand how they've really set the kid and the family up for failing. So again, any treatment facility that works with attachment should be starting with the parents first and really for the child to see that the parents and the professional team are on the same page. That it is the kid and the professionals together against the parents. I see that over and over again. And then parents get frustrated and they go, wait a minute here, you know? Are, you're not listening to me. Right, right. So what are some suggestions or what could you suggest to families? How can they find uh, the right treatment or the right therapist? Well, I know Red Advocates has um, articles on how to pick a therapist. I've consulted with them on, on uh, some of the ways to find a, a clinician and what questions to ask. So I'd refer back to them for that. Um, the other thing is that Dr. Alston, who's a child psychiatrist that I've worked with for almost 30 years, he's working with me now in my consulting business. So sometimes these kids' brains are so dysregulated that they can't calm themselves down. Um, and so he can help with medication to help calm their brains so that they can uh, function better in therapy and um, uh, family living. So sometimes that's where you need to start. Because if you don't calm down their prefrontal lobes, you're dealing with this traumatized brain all the time. And so if an attachment therapist is pushing the attachment relationship with the family, and every time, you know, the kid goes to their own trauma and their memories and vulnerabilities, you know, it actually makes the kiddo worse because it's making them more dysregulated when you're trying to attach them to their parents, when in fact, you, you've got to be able to have the kiddo calmer 
and really wanting to be part of the family, want to work on their own trauma triggers and their behaviors to want to get better. But especially with teenagers, if they've gone to RTCs or several of them, they're already institutionalized. And they'll even say to me, I'd rather have a relationship with my family, but live someplace else. And sometimes it makes more sense for kids to be away from the family in a structured environment and visit their family. Because when you put them back in the home, it's just way too difficult for them. Plus the fact that the family's in PTSD recovery mode. So every time they see the child start to escalate, that kicks in their defensiveness. So it becomes a trauma-based family from this disorder. So then nobody wins. So when I'm assessing families, you know, sometimes a parent is done. They just can't do it anymore. And, and they feel guilty and shameful and upset about that. But that's the truth because some of the things that these kids have done to these families, I mean, you could tell rat advocates have stories, you know, about, yeah, I mean, even fearing for their lives sometimes at night. So um, just think about trauma for every human being in this family that this child has affected. And so sometimes you just don't have a family system that can recover from that. Hard to say, but it's really uh, the reality of the truth more often than not. And is there kind of a spectrum of these kids in a way like, you know, are, is there a spectrum of, you know, kind of mild yes. to really severe? Yes. Um, all kids that have been disrupted from their birth family, you know, have attachment issues. Um, the disorder, there's a mild, moderate to severe uh, levels of reactive attachment disorder. Okay. So kids in the moderate to severe disorder range, it's very difficult for them to be able to recover from just outpatient therapy, um, parenting classes, things like that, to be able to feel safe enough to give up control. Because if you think about trauma, their brains are in this hyper-aroused trauma state. And so you're basically asking the brain to calm down, be vulnerable, and let a parent figure touch them when, in fact, they were physically, sexually abused or whatever. So the amygdala, the part of the brain that stores trauma memories, is always going to be there how much are we able to calm down that part of the brain so that when you're working on the attachments, we're not re-traumatizing the traumatized brain. So it's, it's complicated that way. So, so whether it's neurofeedback or medicine or whatever, how do we figure out how to calm them down so then therapy can work? Because I'm not going to be able to do therapy with a child in the family until they're calmer and they really want to figure out how to be part of the family. So that's where I want to start with these kids for sure. Gotcha. And do you start with wherever they're at, whatever age, when people come to you, you just, yes. yeah. Yeah. Um, I love working with teenagers. That's just kind of the weird part of me. I like, I like their thinking and I like their, they're able to connect the dots better. Um, so a teenager, I can usually get a teenager to think differently. So when I'm doing an interview with them, I'm giving them information about why they are the way they are, why they're different than the other kids in the family. Uh, I try to normalize it for them to say, well, no wonder you act this way. Look at what happened. And this is what happened to your brain. So I'm doing a psychoeducational interview with them. And, and even challenging them to say, I don't think you can recover from it. I think it's too hard. I don't think you're going to, I mean, you've had all these years of pushing away and controlling and all that for survival. I just don't, so I try to put them in conflict where they're going to say, oh, no, I can. And, you know, instead of come to me, I'll fix you. And I'd rather get, put them in conflict about the truth of their life than try to fluff it up and make it, you know, all rosy because it's not rosy at all. And they don't, and even if you do that, they think you're lying to them and they don't respect you anyway. So a lot of teenagers, I'll just leave them in the conflict to say, so if you'd like to work on this, think about it and let me know. 
if you don't want to, then I won't hear from you. you know, so, um, and sometimes they'll fire me in the middle of the interview and, and run away because they don't want to hear the truth of it. See, so, so a lot of times in therapy, it's not about how do I get the kid to like me? It's about how do I get the kid to really respect what I'm trying to do to help them get better? Because I can't help them get better unless they want to, unless they want to really join with me to help them get through it. And I said, it's hard work. It's the hardest work you're ever going to do. You know, parents gave up on you when you were young. If you were born to this adoptive family, I wouldn't be talking to you because you know that there's birth kids perhaps in this family. And how are they doing? Oh, they're doing well. Well, so these parents actually know what they're doing then. With me, they don't. Well, that's probably true. They don't. So we're here to try to figure out how to do that together. But I can't do this without you, kiddo. So um, sometimes they'll just run away and not want to. They like the system of control better. Some will, it'll touch their heart in a vulnerable way. And usually those are kids that are less disturbed with the disorder. So. Gotcha. And what happens to the ones that don't come back? Let's say I don't want therapy or that just don't buy in. Well, then you have to figure out how to put them in conflict. So, you know, a lot of times these teenagers, they're making parent, they wear them down so much that they're giving them video games or giving them whatever they want just to not deal with the battle. And I understand that. Um, so if you want to put this kid in conflict, we put our heads together to figure out how to have them outside the family, but not in Disneyland, not in you know, Disneyland treatment centers where they've got horses and pets and they're having fun all the time. I mean, those kids love those environments, you know. So how do we, how do we put them in conflict about wanting to be part of the family? Um, and if they don't, you know, as they get older, you just figure out other environments like Job Corps, you know, they can go there at sometimes at 16 or 17 and you can love them from a distance, but they're in a structured environment. Um, so you just have to be creative or not and just give in to them and feed into their own narcissistic wound of, you know, if I get my way, I'll be okay. Right. And for people who don't know, what does a, what does a rad kid, you know, look like? What is different? So for people, you know, often families and parents are misunderstood or judged by other people and it's kind of put on them, like you were saying, that, you know, um, it must be a parenting thing, but these kids are really different. And what is it that makes them different? How do they present? And why don't other people see what the family sees to cause all that, yeah, you it's know, a great question. misjudgment? I mean, in the home, you're really seeing um, a raging toddler in a bigger body. And if you think of it developmentally, they're stuck there in that narcissistic wound of I've got to be in control, I've got to have things go my way in order to feel okay. So they really stay stuck there. They even stay stuck there into their adult life. I mean, our prisons are full of reactive attachment disordered people. Um, I've wondered about that. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I could get, that's a whole nother. <laughs> another episode. Yeah, but um, so where was I going with this? So when they're outside the family, they look different, okay, because they're not, you know, they're, they're figuring out how to work the system outside the family so that they can work the therapist. They can work extended family members like grandparents, you know, their job is to spoil their grandkids. Well, rad kids love to be over there because you give me my way all the time. And I'll actually act superficially charming while I'm there to get my way. But then when I go back home, I don't want parenting. I don't want structure. I don't want someone to tell me what to do. Okay? So they look different away from the family than in the family. And so when a parent is trying to explain what it's like to live with them, the therapist or the teacher or the grandparents or the judge or whatever doesn't see the same kid. They see a superficially charming kid that doesn't look like the kid that you're explaining. Is there a child that you've worked with or a family that really surprised you or touched your heart or changed your thinking? Yes. Well, actually several, but, but the stories that, um, 
ring home the most for me is when when I developed a pro a, you know program for the kiddo to come into that actually settled within a family structured system environment where they learned the skills to be a family kid and then the parents actually did their own work around their own upbringing maybe they had a controlling father or they had a dismissive mother or whatever so that when the parents are really taking a look at their own triggers and they've done some good work around that while their their child is developing the skills and is disconnecting their triggers then you put back together and you see actually um the attachment connection that they all should have had when the kiddo was little and that's what warms my heart is to see because you know for the most part we could pretty much get most kids settled down okay where we they function in a therapeutic family treatment environment but then if the parents didn't do their own work you know around their own buttons or triggers you put a kid back in that environment and they they go back to their own defended ways because the parents really weren't prepared to have the kiddo back so having the whole family system treating the whole family system is what warmed my heart to really have everybody working hard um i i would say to parents a lot of times can you look at the gift in the strange package you adopt hmm. <laughs> it's i'm kind of tired of these gifts you know <laughs> it just worked better because my system before I brought them in seemed like it worked okay. Right. And so these kids came in as a diagnosticians and brought out whatever vulnerability we had, you know. So having everybody reconnect and and seeing the tears and the and the apologies and having the kiddo say, "Mom, I want you," and looking in because a lot of times these adopted kids, the adopted parents pick the kid, the kid never had a chance to pick you very true to see the attachment relationship where the child looks in mom's eyes and said mom will you love me i mean and and so for the mom will say boy that looked genuine felt genuine they were soft their eyes were soft they really looked like and then their behavior was matching that too that's what that's what just juiced me to do the work where you reconnect them cuz you know in all tents and purposes everybody wanted the same thing they just didn't know how to get there right and i think that's the most frustrating thing is everybody does want the same thing but you don't know how to get there very true very true and so would you say that reactive attachment disorder is something that you can cure or do these kiddos live with it for the rest of their lives even the ones that do get some support well, um, going back to the trauma brain, the trauma memories will probably always be there, but they're more manageable. So there might be things in life that will trigger that again. What I want them to be able to do is take a step back and know what that trauma trigger is and that they respond in a different way to the trigger. And so to me, it's repair work as a project for them so the parents are really preparing them to resolve their trauma history and memories and to use their family as the foundation to move forward. So when they go out in the world, which we do with our own bio kids, you know, when our bio kids fall down, they go back to their secure base. Right. Back to family and say, boy, I screwed up. You know, I need some help to figure out how to get back on track. And that's what you want these kids as adults to do where they're able to go back to their secure base and go, I need some more practice. Right. That would be very nice for everybody. <laughs> well, we have adult, you know, my colleague and I developed an adult program where an intensive outpatient program for adults that have attachment trauma histories that, that, you know, they're not a high in the spectrum because they don't want to come back to a therapist's office. They want to run from it. So they really want to get better and they're tired of the loneliness and the anger and the agitated brain. They really want to get better. So we developed a, an outpatient model for adults that are still on their journey. Right. So talk a little bit more about that because you run Lifespan Trauma Consulting 
And so what are, you offer a couple of different things, which I thought were very interesting. It wasn't just the family therapy, but you kind of catch things at all different levels. Yeah, and I, I also do expert testimony in custody situations where Department of Human Services is, you know, stepped in and they're siding with the child against the parents. So I'll come in and explain to the court what the disorder is and how the system is joining with the kid and how that's not helping. I do um, those kind of things. And then I do the assessments. I might refer to Dr. Olson for medication management. Um, I'll do some parenting, coaching, training um, online, um, but it's limited because it's all virtual. Uh, and then I'll do um, adult work. I've got a colleague, Margaret Meineke, and I developed an adult attachment model where we do six-day intensive work. So we've got that going on as well. And is that for, did I read that you work with kiddos even as adults? Oh, yeah. So after they've, you know, left their family, if they've been successful with that family or if they've, you know, gone through treatment centers, um, how does that work? Well, um, for an adult with attachment disorder, the fact that they're calling me up when they're 25 or 30, to me, means they're motivated or something, you know, they're motivated to want to get better because, I mean, the big battle with adolescents is trying to figure out how to slow them down to want to want what you have to offer. With adults, they're pretty much coming to me going, I'm tired of this life, I really want to get better. So those clients are, you know, it's to our advantage to work with them. So we do a six-day treatment where we're working three to four hours every day, two clinicians doing lots of uh, eyes closed, trauma work, guided imageries, all kinds of strategies we put together. And they have to come with a safe person. So it might be a spouse, it might be a best friend, it might be a parent where they come with someone to hold their hand through it. Um, it's pretty intensive work, but it's uh, really been uh, a very rich clinical experience for us to work with with adults that really want to get better. Right. I love that. Um, you were saying that, you know, a lot of rad kids end up in the prison system. What, if they're not there, <laughs> what, what is life like for a rad kid as they get older that maybe didn't have this kind of help that you offer or support? It's really a sad scenario. Um, a lot of times they'll repeat the same legacy as their birth parents, you know, whether they fall into addiction, um, they just fall into um, a situation where they, if they're in control of the environment around them, they feel safer. So uh, a lot of them are lonely in their adult life if they don't end up in jail or with addiction. Uh, because they put this controlling veneer around themselves to protect themselves and it's hard to let someone in. So if they can control the relationship, you know, they might find someone that's really codependent and kind of a more of a doormat personality and that system will work for the adult with RAD. Um, but with the RAD kids that I've worked with that are on the severe end, they have really a tough adult life. And I'll get calls from them perhaps later uh, that will say, you know, all that stuff you told me about when I was 14 or 15, it all makes sense to me now. But if you hmm. think about the brain, the, the prefrontal lobes don't mature till our mid-20s. Right. So until their brains mature, sometimes everything you've tried to put in them, in their brains and help them with, doesn't come full circle until their brain matures. So... Um, I like adults uh, that weren't successful in this treatment to go into a structured environment. A lot of them I might recommend go in the military and at least the structure will define how to be and you can be successful and make a career and things like that. So, and then their brains mature and they come out and they, they've been successful. They've had, um, you know, some uh, accolades in their life and now they can come back and do the emotional work because now they're ready. And speaking of that, is there a harder rad kid to work with? You know, you hear 
often about the really severe cases, like you were saying, you know, that are homicidal or trying to harm animals or people. Um, is there a rad kid that's just as tough, but it's all kind of emotionally locked in? Can they be just as tough to work with? Well, um, kids on the severe end of the disorder spectrum, and if they have mental illness with it, that's the toughest client to recover. Um, I'm talking about mood disorder. So if you think about birth parents that hurt their kids, you know, there has to be um, some, some mental struggles there as far as their own mental illness. And so mental illness can be genetic. And so if they've got the attachment disorder uh, control working pretty hard in their, in their life, and they've got a mental illness, that's a tough client to turn around, especially once they hit age of majority. You know, now they're medicating their brains with illegal substances or alcohol to calm down their disrupted brains. So then they become addicted to trying to make their brain feel better. So now you're in the addiction field. Um, in fact, the addiction field is that I'd like to have our adult model in the addiction field because the attachment model a lot of times is missing there. So you get people off the addictive substances, but then they still have the emotional vulnerability that scares the heck out of them. Jeez, it's a lot more complicated than yes. I even knew. Really complicated. Well, it's, the, it's our toughest uh, population out there in the mental health field and the criminal justice field. Is it really? Well, people that don't have remorse or care about it, they don't have empathy for anybody. That's the severe attachment disordered person, you know, that they feel the world owes them and they take from the world. I mean, really, you're looking at uh, the foundation of sociopathy, you know, where people don't have the ability to care for any other living human being. They want everybody to circle the wagons around them. Is there a myth about reactive attachment disorder or that you would like to debunk? Well, I think that it gets overdiagnosed and, and uh, misunderstood a lot. So, I mean, you'll even find mental health clinicians that will say it doesn't exist. So what I'm, I mean, if you were, if any mental health professional, in fact, I just wrote a blog on this for Rad Advocates about um, what therapists should do that they really need to go back and look at Erickson's stages of development the first three years to really understand the developmental foundation that was disrupted in these in these kids so then if you look at it that way you're able to know a better idea about how to treat them and make sense of why they do what they do um, but Russell Vanderkoek, you know, really tried to get developmental trauma in the, D the last DSM revised edition. He wasn't able to get it in there, but that his definition uh, of developmental trauma really is a better definition for attachment disorder. It really captures it better. So are those two things the same or are they different? Well, he would say that trauma, you know, you to have trauma, to have developmental disruption, other developmental trauma disorder. But I would say that, you know, neglect, uh, you know, like kids that are in orphanages where they're not picked up and left a lot to me, that's a traumatized brain. So we're not talking about violence or, you know, things like that, um, that I think neglect is trauma. So I guess really defining developmental trauma and expanding it that way. Um, that you really have clients that um, are, are trying to recover from that trauma. And unless the adult world is able to help them through that, they can't do it on their own. Gotcha. So rad, I guess rad is on its way out. Um, meaning that, you know, it really in the DSM doesn't define it well. Um, so developmental trauma, I believe, is going to be 
the next uh, edition of that disorder that's going to explain it better, that we're looking at it from a trauma perspective. Interesting. And what do you think about the system in dealing with this? Because there's there are a lot of our listeners, a lot of parents out there, um, you know, again, it's very difficult to find the right support or people that are trained in this. And so then a lot of parents are dealing with a system of, uh, you know, they, a teacher might call child, youth and family um, and report a parent and then child, youth and family comes in and doesn't understand RAD or the situation. And then that starts a whole incident and then it just goes from there and from therapy into residential treatment centers or the emergency room or police showing up. You know, can you talk a little bit to that, what's happening there or not happening? Well, you know, I would say that uh, being able to train foster care agencies that do adopted placements, that this is critical for them to understand the other thing is um, adoption subsidies. For example, when because uh, attachment disorder is a pre-existing condition to the adoption, and so a lot of times human services will wash their hands and go, "Well, the adoption's finalized. Here's a Medicaid card, and you're on your own." Very true. In fact, a lot of times the Medicaid providers don't have the expertise necessarily treat the problem. Um, and so there's a Tim O'Hanlon, which used to be an adoption worker in Ohio, stepped away from that, wrote a book and had an advocacy for website for adopted parents that reactive attachment disorder is a pre-existing condition of the adoption. And a lot of parents are in a case of wrongful adoption. In fact, uh, Amy Van Tyne, um, you know, challenge that system and she actually won that system um, but a lot of parents don't know their rights that they can go back and ask for treatment dollars and help that's specific to the disorder and then there's just such an injustice a lot of times in human services where they do the horror stories of where they have taken control of the kid or they believe in you know the false allegation you know so these kids figure out how to split the family and get their way and they can wreck family lives so that's where i've been where i've come in in an expert testimony to say that this is what these kids do to control they will lie and set people up so um we'll even do lie detectors uh with kids in treatment especially kids that have been sexually abused and are sex offenders thing. So once you hook them up to a lie detector, they'll tell the truth pretty quickly. You know, so there's some ethical issues around that, but I, I think it's an awesome way just to get kids to talk about their truth and to say, you know, you won't get in trouble for telling the truth. In fact, um, your treatment will move along a lot quicker once you kind of get all of that out. Um, so getting them to be honest and truthful is, is another challenge that you have to do. So but human services, again, they're not joining with parents. They're joining with the kiddo. And they're also saying that, well, kids don't make this stuff up. No, they do. Residential <laughs> treatment, how to do these strategies as well. So is there a lot of work to be done still? Oh, man. <laughs> There I think is. I just got my answer. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, um, I'm still working at it in my retirement, but um, it's, it's frustrating to know who's carrying the baton. There's, there's the attach organization that continues to train clinicians and, and do their conferences and stuff. So that would be a place to go look maybe for some uh, therapists that have at least been trained more and what I'm talking about. Um, but there's, I mean, that effort's been going on for 30 years. Right. What do you think needs to change? I know you've talked a little bit about it, but is there hope? What are some hopeful things or things that maybe you see changing that? 
Yeah, I think that the advancement in neurofeedback has been huge. I mean, Bessler van der Kolk's a big believer in that. Um, I was trained in it. Um, but doing neurofeedback with an expert in treating trauma is really what you need to find uh, versus just somebody that's practicing on your kid and charging you X amount of dollars. Um, so if there's folks that want referrals for that, you know, just they can give me a call and I'll give them a referral. But I think that being able to calm down their brains with that technique would definitely be worth it, but with an expert. And that's different because you hear a lot about EMDR, but that's not what that is. Is that right? No, no. That's different. Yeah, so EM, yeah. EMDR is powerful as well. Um, but that's, it's just a whole different strategy. Whereas neurofeedback, you're trying to organize the brain in healthy patterns um, so that, you know, it's that trauma memory doesn't have the, the big punch that it did before. Their brain's calmer. It isn't, doesn't startle them as much. You can actually train the brain to compensate for that uh, trauma damage um, to do better. But again, I want to emphasize you need a trauma expert in, in that um, versus just somebody that is doing it for ADHD or whatever. Right. Took a workshop and is trying yeah. it out kind of thing. Gotcha. So is there um, anything that I should have asked you that I didn't know enough to ask that you would like to talk about? Well, I think um, Rad Advocates is really pushing to kind of carry the baton uh, in the future. Um, and we've got the first national conference sponsored by them next summer, um, where it's only gonna be for adoptive families um, with, with these kids. That's the whole focus. It's not gonna be a conference where you got all these different disciplines coming in and you know it's gonna be focused on the family, the disorder, and what you can do about it and things like that. So we're excited about that. And that's next year, did you say? Next uh, June 11th and 12th in Denver. Um, and it's limited, I think, 100 to 150 people. So I'd like to get that announcement out there because I'm sure that they'll be doing that conference every year or maybe in different parts of the country. Uh, it'd be great. It's not really geared for professionals. It's geared for the family. Great. And I'll be speaking at the conference next summer too. Great. And people can access that on the Rad Advocates, radadvocates.org yep. page. Good. Well, great. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. Um, it's been extremely enlightening and I thank you so much. Well, I hope it's helpful to others. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. To learn more about Forrest Lean, please visit lifespantrauma.com. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.